You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. In the context of Christian theology, what is tradition? And what is it for? Is it a unified, monolithic body of doctrines from which we deviate at our peril? Is it a quarry of texts open to be mined by any and all for juicy quotations? Instead of these images, Matt Jensen offers us the image of apprenticeship. In his book, Theology and the Democracy of the Dead, Jensen reminds us that we inherit not only ideas from the tradition, but also models of practice in the arts of reading and thinking, models that are both original and humbly faithful to the witness of Scripture and the Spirit's guiding work in the Church. I'm David Grubbs, your host for this episode of Christian Humanist Profiles, and with us today is Dr. Matt Jensen, professor of theology in the Tory Honors College at Biola University and author of Theology and the Democracy of the Dead, a dialogue with the living tradition, published by Baker Academic. Welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Jensen. Thank you, David Grubbs. How are you? Oh, I'm pretty decent. Houston Street knew well. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Probably a little, a little drier out here than in Houston. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing. We could be wetter than we are now, but not much. <laughs> we don't want to be. <laughs> well, this book, uh, Theology in the Democracy of the Dead, let's start by unpacking the title. So, yeah. what is a democracy of the dead, uh, and why isn't that voter fraud? And in what sense is the tradition <laughs> a, a living one? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's that, that's great, and that that comes straight out of uh, a quote from G.K. Chesterton. I'm even going to read you just a couple of sentences so you get a sense. Um, and, and he starts. He says, "I've never been able to understand where people got the idea that democracy was in some way opposed to tradition." And and I guess there he's probably thinking something like, you know, democracy is. Is a progressive reality. It's a it's a reality that's fundamentally egalitarian, and tradition is probably some kind of conservative thing that's fundamentally hierarchical. Something something like that, in kind of a loose sense. And Chesterton says it's obvious that tradition is only democracy extended through time. It's trusting to a consensus of common human voices rather than to some isolated or arbitrary record. Tradition may be defined as an extension of the franchise. Tradition means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It's the democracy of the dead. And he goes on and says, you know, in, in democracy, um, we allow everyone to vote, even, uh, let's say, a plumber. I don't know what, what a good example of sort of an elite is. And he says, in tradition, we allow everyone to vote, even our grandfather. Um, and so, so I think the idea here is that, is that theology and the doc, democracy of the dead is, is talking about, if you will, giving a vote um, to people who came before us when we do our theological thinking. Um, I was thinking about it today, um, and I was thinking about the notion of implicit bias um, and the way in which uh, people, uh, usually people in power, have an implicit bias on behalf of their own kind. And I think part of what I'm trying to do in the book is is argue that we actually have a implicit chronological bias too, that we take our own presuppositions for granted. We think that modern thinking is good thinking. Um, so even later today, I'm going to be with a group of honors science students at Biola uh, in, a, in a place called the, the Stuart Honors uh, Group. And we're talking about Augustine's understanding of creation. And it looks really weird when he interprets Genesis 1. But of course, really weird is totally a judgmental uh, verdict offered from the fact that it doesn't occur to me to ask about when the angels are created or some of the very particular <laughs> things that that, yeah. that matter to Augustine. Um, but one of the questions I'm going to ask students is, what would Augustine think was weird about your doctrine of creation? Um, and so so that's that's the hope. The hope here is that, that uh, particularly for people who don't come from uh, Christian traditions that have a, a richer sense of history, um, that this will introduce people into, um, give them a little bit of apprenticeship to uh, long dead people who are uh, kind of master interpreters of scripture. So in what sense is that tradition in this democracy of the dead? In what sense is it a 
a living tradition. That the way that you juxtapose those two words in the title and the subtitle uh, makes for an interesting, I don't know, what do we call it? A tension, a pairing, a polarity, uh, one of yeah, those other fancy yeah. words. Yeah, that's great. And probably in a lot of ways. Um, let me think of a few different ways. It, one sense uh, in which it's living is uh, that it's the job of each generation to hand on the faith to the next. And so there's a sense in which the, the faith has to be rearticulated, refought for, reintegrated. So much of the theological teaching I'm doing and even the learning that I'm doing personally, it's not so much even finding the right proposition, but it's trying to get it down into my gut, into my heart. So that kind of personal and corporate reintegration. So the handing on the faith is a, is a living thing. It's The tradition isn't something that's just stuck in the past uh, that we can then look at, but it's it's something that kind of makes its way into our spiritual DNA. That's one thing. Um, I think it's living in that uh, there's a living communion of saints before the face of God. So there's a very real sense here in which um, uh, we are responsible to the saints who are alive in Jesus's presence. Uh, we're responsible for how we articulate the faith they've handed to us. So there's kind of a communal accountability sense, I think, there. Um, and I think also that uh, it's living in that it's uh, there is w within a certain scope, there's movement in the tradition. There's room for critique and correction and adaptation and a shifting of emphasis. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a committed Protestant who believes in sola scriptura. So I think the bounds are, are scripture. But but I also think uh, we had uh, we'd be close to crazy to get rid of um some of the most ecumenical pronouncements, for instance, at the councils, um, there's a clear ordering there. But, um, you know, so I think there's certain bounds to it. But within those bounds, um, there's all sorts of room for exploring what does, mean, what does this mean for us today? Uh, potentially, how have our uh, fathers and mothers in the faith got it wrong or at least not seen something? How do we apply things? Um, we, we were joking sort of off off camera or pre-recording about uh, the fact that we're we're all al algorithmically oriented these days. Talk about something that uh, that the tradition has not knowingly anticipated. That's how I want to put it. I mean, I think there are all sorts of. In fact, I'm working on a book now on theological anthropology, retrieving the tradition for that. And so I think there are lots of ways that um, we'll be surprised to find resources there. But it's not because Gregory of Nyssa said, oh, yeah, I know there's coming a day when robots are going to rule the earth. <laughs> and that was on the radar. So that's got it. We, you know, so, so part of the tradition being living is if, if I take Gregory of Nyssa and I take his speculation, say, on the nature of the resurrected body and say, could this inform how we think about AI? Could this inform how we think about transhumanism, about the limits of it? Um, Maybe even ways, though, that, that there might be good things to learn there. Um, so those are, those are a few ways, at least. You use the language of apprenticeship uh, significantly in the, in the introduction and present these essays as a kind of demonstration of, of an apprenticeship to one of these uh, doctors um, among the congregation around the throne. Um, in what way does this sort of apprenticeship engage with the livingness of this tradition? Is it keeping the tradition alive? Is it acknowledging that it is alive? Is it a participating in that life? That's good. Yeah. Um, certainly a participation in it. I, you know, I, I'm, I think I'm less eager to say keeping it alive because I think it's just alive and uh, already. And theolog if theological teachers thought it was their primarily their job to keep a tradition alive, that's way way too vaunted of an estimation of the role of a theology teacher. Um, if if anyone keeps it alive, it's it's the worshiping saints. It's uh, in the life of the church today all around the world. Um, so I don't think we keep it alive, but but it is part of how the tradition lives. Um, is in our participation in it. And I, I think it's probably, I think by apprenticeship, I'm hoping to further induct readers into that life um, and maybe to teach them how to how to live it well. Um, so along with apprenticeship, I, I think of the 
the image of sort of if if uh, if I was with a reader um, and we were standing over the shoulder of a master painter um, and and say I'm just kind of pointing out okay this is do you notice how he's using this color here and you see this juxtaposition and how he frames things and that's what I'm wanting to do um, so you'll you'll notice in the book that I quote like crazy. Yeah. Um, it's not that I don't have my own thoughts, um, but what I what I most want to do is actually show the words and then help the reader make sense of the words. So it's 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 meant to be flying really close to the ground. Um, so rather than, say, like a thirty six thousand foot airplane where you can see some of the the most basic uh, terrain features, I'm I'm like a crop duster um, who's going yeah. along and is able to spot the animals and is able to spot the little little bits of, you know, even different kind of types of uh, flora that are there. And I'm wanting to stay close. And mainly because I think um, these really are some of the, the best theological thinkers we've ever had. And so if we can get our side, our, 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 our minds inside their minds and even inside their words and the logic of them, um, then as we, as our, as our minds take on some of the cast of theirs, um, we're going to inevitably become better theological thinkers. Excellent. Uh, now, your project begins using terms of unity. It's mm. the democracy and the tradition. Both of those are singular. Um, mm. In the introduction, you're using words like communion and catholicity and wholeness. But these theologians disagreed about some really important things. In fact, I think yeah. that if if these guys somehow through some kind of Doctor Who timey wimey stuff manage to all be in the same place, that some of them would not want to be in the same room on the same list. They'd be voting each other yeah. off the island. Totally, totally. Which, so, by the way, that that game can we take, can we take a two minute sidebar? Just <laughs> get recorded. Oh okay. yeah. Okay, so uh, what do you think, David? If if this group, not not who do you think, but if the group itself had to gather around and vote someone off the island, who do you think they vote off? Oh yeah, At, before the vote happened, Athanasius would have set Schleiermacher on fire. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Like like I don't think we even would have yeah. got to have voted at that point. Yeah, they're gonna say screw democracy. We're gonna. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I honestly no. So that's the other thing. I bet two thirds of the two thirds of the authors are going to say, "I don't want to hear anything about a democracy when there's heresy. You need to either excommunicate it or you know, or worse." Yeah, so maybe Schleiermacher. Yeah, yeah I could see that. It, I mean, it does kind of depend on where you're at. I mean, Bart's Bart's going to kind of fluttered his his beautiful blue eyes and try to save Schleiermacher, who's his frenemy, and uh, I think Bart's going to try to get rid of uh, Dennis the Areopagite, probably. Oh yeah, yeah, but I, you know, I, I don't think Dennis would understand what Bart was doing. Yeah, that's right. I think <laughs> that's, and he, and he honestly is probably sitting, sitting quietly and contemplatively to the side, so people might, might miss him. It yeah. might be Athanasius because he's just such a son of a gun. Yeah, it, that's yeah. Much, uh, or, or Luther, you pit yep. the two of them against each other. Well, I mean, you've got so many of these guys that are like Mac versus PC, but Dennis is kind of doing his own. You know, he's like one of those guys with the penguin operating system. You know, it's like he's wow. he's he's just so different. Um, I know that I know that these later many of these later patristic and medieval uh, writers are are reading him and engaging him, but uh, he he feels he he often feels like he's doing such a different thing to me. Yeah. But then I read the Middle <laughs> English Cloud of Unknowing, and then I'm like, ah, there it is. And, and part of why I think I wanted Dennis, I was mentioning earlier that um, in the Tory Honors College where I've been teaching, this is my 15th year there now, um, we, uh, so we, we've taught Dennis. That's part of why I had him. Um, but also I think it is his very otherness um, that commends him and his influence, you know, particularly on the mystical tradition is just insane Yeah. Uh, that, that it makes it worthwhile. I also – so – I've kind of dealt some with clinical anxiety off and on in the last decade. And I sort of through a back door, I got into another side of Dennis. So I was reading him theologically and for teaching um, and then dealing with anxiety. I, I stumbled on centering prayer as it's been popularized by Thomas Keating, 
which mm -hmm. traces its origins to the cloud, which traces its origins to Dennis. And all of a sudden, Dennis became not just a sort of philosophically speculative guy, but I, I sort of was seeing some of what he was doing as it tied into some of the mental health and spiritual practices that were really helping me. Um, that, that was significant personally, too. Um, but, but back to yeah, your question about these guys disagreeing. Absolutely. I think it's I think it's Jeffrey Stout who has this great line um, where he says that. Uh, oh, no, no. Maybe that's McIntyre. Now I'm rethinking myself. It probably is Alistair McIntyre. It's one of those guys um, <laughs> who said that tradition is uh, is uh, or sorry, that, that tradition is an argument extended through time. Mm. Um, and, and I do think now that that's it's a little tricky because um, Christians don't just want the pluralism of disagreement and divergent viewpoints. So we kind of struggled between, on the one hand, wanting to um, commend an orthodoxy that has boundaries to it, and also partly because of humility and our, our acknowledgement of our own sin and the mystery and transcendence of God, we also want to recognize the provisionality of almost all of our statements. So we're kind of between those two things. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think there's, there's a lot to be said for a tradition as being this argument extended through time. It's an argument, you know, we want to say about the proper reading of Scripture, which is itself about what God has done for us ultimately in Christ. Um, so it's, it's an argument about something and, it, and therefore it's ruled. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, so, so one of the, the places I think it's really fascinating in, in my book is it shows up in. The, the trajectory from Calvin to Edwards to Schleiermacher to Barth, um, all four of whom uh, people regard as Reformed theologians, radically different. Um, and a lot of it for them is this, this argument about how the spirit applies the work of Christ in the life of a believer. Um, and, you know, so that's, that's there right in the beginning of Calvin. At the beginning of book three in the Institutes, he's saying, boy, unless the spirit brings Christ in you, what Christ has done for you avails nothing. But he's, he's, he's got this word and spirit thing. Edwards comes along and says, no, but seriously, have you been born again? You know, have, are you regenerate? And, and do you have these holy affections that characterize you? So it's, it's, it's this turn towards, it's still Christ-centered, but the, the piety piece is big. Schleiermacher comes along and says, no, no, really. All of theology is just <laughs> reflecting on piety. Um, and he, he's, he's, people will sometimes miss how Christ-centered Schleiermacher is. He really is Christ-centered, and he thinks Christ is unique. But um, it's, our, it's, it's a heterodox um, – I think ultimately it's a, it's a heretical uh, take on that. And he, at the end of the day, he is most interested in the pious experience and in, in, in what we're experiencing on this kind of pre-reflective level. And then Bart comes back and says – Man, you got this trajectory that becomes more and more subjective. It loses the object of theology. And so he just skewers subjectivity in theology left and right to the point that I think one of the reasons that a lot of people suspect that he is a closet universalist is because he, he is so nervous of emphasizing what happens to me um, that he almost loses the need for anything to happen to me in the process of salvation. So I mean, even yesterday I was talking with some students about Romans in class. And the question I asked was, was what is salvation and when does it happen? Kind of what's, how do we map it in time? And I think that started for me because, because of this famous moment when apparently someone asked Bart when he was saved and he said, 2000 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I sort of, I, I both once I, at yeah. once I both love it. And I think, that is not enough. You know, so he's saying, Jesus died and rose. I'm saved. Uh, yeah. But of course, I mean, I think Paul's going to say, yeah, but when when did you hear the word? And when did you repent and believe? And when were you baptized and filled with the spirit and joined the church? You know, so we don't have both those poles. But but that's partly that's the argument. And so yeah. to, to kind of document those different moments, you're seeing how people are wrestling with the proper way to speak of what the spirit is doing and bringing Christ to us. I mean, we often use the term uh, the great conversation, but a lot of the voices are raised pretty high in that <laughs> conversation. Yeah, totally. That's a conversation that would make me nervous. <laughs> yeah, it's the great fight. It really is. Yeah. And maybe it's and maybe it's the fight, the fight among, you know, it's either a family quarrel or it's the fight that only people who 
deeply come to know and love each other and have a real allegiance to one another uh, can fight. Um, yeah. And that's important too. You know, so if we owe, uh, if we are brothers and sisters, if, if we if we need to even love our enemies, we sure as heck better love our theological enemies amongst mm-hmm. our brothers and sisters. Almost like an HOA. Um, <laughs> oh man! Like like you're gonna have some some big fights at yeah, the HOA, yeah. but you're all in the same neighborhood. Yeah. And you want that neighborhood to do well based on a definition of well that um, hopefully isn't entirely incommensurate. Yeah. And you've got to live together. Yes. <laughs> you, can't, you could move out, but you've got, you got a lot of investment sunk in there. Right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I appreciate about this project is the way that you consider these past theologians as – biblical thinkers. So maybe that's one way of thinking about what is the thing they're all doing together. Um, They're reading the Bible. So, but what being biblical means is different for each one. Not entirely different, but there's often some serious differences. So what are some of the models of being biblical that you present in these books that you consider the most useful or important or thought provoking? And are there any that you just like, that's, that's not quite enough could do better that's that's great and thanks for picking up on that that's um i think i think it's the it's a line from gerhard ebeling who says that the history of the church is the history of the interpretation of scripture um and i i've become pretty convinced of that um it's it is striking to me how much and and you'll have moments like where where calvin says that his um i was about to say his church dogmatics wow where he says his institute (laughs) is really just a primer for reading scripture. And of course, he's, you know, I've got on my shelf, I can't even show you in Skype how wide Calvin's commentaries are and still eminently helpful uh, even today. Um, so the, w- people don't often read these things by people. Um, so if you think about someone like Bonaventure, people might be probably most familiar with Bonaventure's journey of the mind or the soul to God. They might be familiar with his uh, life of Francis. Um but he's got, I mean, he's got this massive commentary in Ecclesiastes. And, you know, so often these folks have huge commentaries um, that we're not even aware of. And it's not that only those things are their biblical work either. Um, so so really high points. Um, I, do, I, I do think Irenaeus is just stunning. Um, he's so early. So he's writing, you know, he's probably dead by about 180. And he's yeah. he is writing in uh, his two major extant works. We we have the demonstration and the against heresies. Um, he just grasps the whole of scripture in a stunning way. Um, and it's it's I think I say something like uh, in the book, going from Justin Martyr just a few decades before to Irenaeus is like going from candles to light bulbs. Yeah, it's, it's just you know, it's going from going kind of piecemeal to whole hog and canonical. He's got the whole picture of scripture in mind. Um, and in fact, all of his uh, polemic against the Gnostics is built on the sense of the unity of scripture. And it's a unity of scripture that's also uh, Christomorphic. So so scripture holds together because it all presents the image of Jesus, but it allows him to, to push back against the uh, sort of anti-Jewishness of someone like Marcion, who would cut out the whole Old Testament and, and kind of cut up uh, the new to get rid of the Jewish parts. It allows him to um, push against the Gnosticism that would say that the God we meet in Jesus is utterly foreign from the God we meet in the Old Testament, um, which is still so relevant today. So I think the, the kind of the scope um, of Irenaeus is just unparalleled. Um so, so he's a real obvious one there. I, I do think Calvin is is pretty breathtaking in his uh, scriptural impulse. Um, partly you get you get a sense of this guy who's a humanist, um, and so he's got kind of he's got kind of the literary sense. You know, sometimes you read people. There, there's some theologians who feel like scientists, and some who feel like lit majors. Um, and, and he just he's got a sense for the images of scripture, and and himself can work poetically with the images. Uh, I think he's able to get at what scripture is saying while while attending to the ways in which it says it um, mm-hmm. really effectively. Um, 
So, so, so I start out the, the chapter on Dennis the Areopagite or Pseudo-Dionysius with this wild quote from David Bentley Hart. It's probably the, <laughs> it's probably the point in the book that I get the most comments from people. I'm like, that's yeah. crazy because yeah. um, he, he calls him that most biblical of theologians. And um, if you know any of Dave, David Bentley Hart's writing, he's brilliant and he's kind of crazy. Um, so he's he's he sort of says that and you're you're thinking to yourself, you're smirking. But maybe you're serious and maybe you're also just just try to, as they would say in the UK, try to take the piss out of everyone. But it actually did get me thinking a bit about Dennis because he's mm-hmm. he sounds in some ways just like a kind of uh, like a Neoplatonist. Um, his idiom is that. Um, but in, in particularly, you can see it in the Paulus Press uh, edition. He's uh, he's just littering his writing with biblical references. Uh-huh. Now, in one sense, in one sense, it could be it could be a sign that proof texting alone is not sufficient because there are moments with Dennis where you think you you, you clearly it's like you have your Bible software and you did the word search and now you're just going <laughs> to you know all the word search stuff. Um, do you grasp the whole? I think that's at least a question that he brings up. Um, whether um, I think I, I end up saying he's insufficiently Christological in his orientation. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not that he's not paying attention to the Bible, um, but it could be that he's not grasping the whole sufficiently. Others would disagree. Some uh, there's a guy named Alexander Galitzin who wants to say, you know, actually Dennis Dennis is presuming the context of the Eucharistic liturgy throughout, which is totally Christ-centered. Um, I think I think that presumes too much, but um, we got that. Well, you got someone like Schleiermacher, who's again, who's um, less. Uh, you know, it's a quick a cursory reader would would say something like he's not interested in the Bible. He's interested in experience. Um, he he spends a lot of time writing about the Bible and engaging with the Bible. He preached for decades, um, but he seems most interested in the Bible as the very important initial reports of the experiences of the early Christians. Yeah. So it's not that he's not interested in it, but he's not interested in it as sort of insofar as the words go, more as a report of something that's more important. Mm-hmm. That's a problem, I think. Um, all, anytime sort of moving behind or beneath Scripture, presuming to know what it's really about is the kind of thing that should make us nervous. Um, and, and Luther's interesting uh, as someone who uh, wrote a ton of Scripture again, at times could really wrestle with it and, and wrestle with it in the sense of being a uh, not sure how to conclude. Mm-hmm. Um, at other times, he just got it. I think no one has gotten Galatians the way Luther has gotten Galatians. He just nails it, period. Um, but he also is, I think one of the, the cautionary tales, at least with someone like Luther, is uh, is the danger of being so convinced on a certain point that you build a canon within a canon. I think it's always going to be the danger mm-hmm. that Luther thinks all of the Bible is Galatians. <laughs> and and yet, on the other hand, I don't know that I've read anyone who uh, is more convinced by and more convicting to the reader about the need to appropriate scripture. So the way mm-hmm. he talks about faith as a trusting in the promise of God, um, mm-hmm. I think that's invaluable for the spiritual formation of people. So anyway, that's that's a run through of a few at least. One that uh, as I was reading it, oh, it's uh, – you raised the critique, which is um, you know, one that that's that's pretty uh, pretty frequently raised for Anselm, is that he left out all his Bible footnotes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and that that that's that's a pretty that that's that's a critique that that you see um, frequently, and it's 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 fair, and he especially since he declares out the gate that he's not going to be giving you verses. Um, that's not his project. I wondered if you had delved into uh, his meditations that we have that yeah. sometimes it, cover some of the same doctrinal ground, yeah. but weave in language from scripture in a way that he's not doing in Curdeus Homo. Yeah. Or, you know, I, you know, I, I haven't, and I was thinking about that just the other day, uh, sort of regrettably. Mm-hmm. I was reading uh, Gavin Ortland's 
recent book, uh, which is a commentary in the Proslogion. Mm. Um, and just thinking to myself, when I wrote that, why didn't I do that? I, this is this is where the accidents of history come out. So mm-hmm. in Tori, we read the Curtios Homo. Uh, uh, so as I was e- each of these, uh, maybe save one, begin as lectures um, for Tori as part of my just contractual obligation. Mm-hmm. And because we read Curtios Homo, what I ended up doing was reading all of the major works um, in that particular volume. Yes. Um, and and giving a lecture on the basis of that. Um, so it was kind of one of these regrettable accidents. Um, I haven't delved into the meditations. Uh, and I suspect that we're going to get more of the sort of more something sitting closer to the biblical text there. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that people have made the comment, and I, this has got to be true, that Anselm is not on the one hand, he's doing a pretty in, sort of audacious thing, maybe a bit of a, a high wire act. <laughs> um, it's pretty somewhat autonomous to say here, I'm just going to write what I think. But on the other hand, he is so um, imbibed scripture in Augustine. So some mm-hmm. have called him an alter Augustinus, you know, another Augustine. So he's so imbibed scripture in Augustine that he's um, that, that he's not caring to differentiate between, you know, what might be considered his words and their words, because all he wants to do is to hand on um, this tradition. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm probably partly picking that up from Thomas Williams, who's a great scholar of Anselm, who also just uh, translated the Confessions. And he made an interesting move, which we used with some of our students, where typically in the Confessions, you'll have, uh, they'll put quotations anytime Augustine's using biblical language. And then in the margin or a parenthesis or a note, they'll tell you what the biblical citation is. And Williams put no quotations around any of that. But in the margin, he would always note the biblical reference. And his point was that Augustine's very confession is meant to be in speech that's been so taken over, almost commandeered by the Bible, um, that he's just surrendered himself to the mind of Christ in Scripture. Um, and so that's that's not a way of saying that Augustine's independent. It's actually a way of saying he's so submitted yeah. Um, that that we can't talk about the the authentic Augustine apart from the Bible. And so it could be you have something like that with Anselm too. Um, That's cool. And I'd be open to that. Too. At least, I mean, he's certainly not a, a modern scholar saying, "Who needs the Bible? I'm going to tell you what I think, and I'm going to give you a proof for God's existence that doesn't need the Bible." And it couldn't be any anything further from that. So it's generally acknowledged, and you do, that the pressure uh, the pressures of heresy and schism. Uh, like Irenaeus and Athanasius, uh, are, have pushed doctrine to develop in ways that met that time's need. Mm. But as I was reading, I was really struck by the way that inner conflict was playing this role in the development of these theologians in a way that I hadn't always appreciated for all of them. Some of them, you know, you kind of know Augustine because he's very forefront about that. <laughs> but uh, that kept coming up. In, in ways that I found uh, a really interesting parallel. So what are some of the gifts to the tradition that have risen from people like Augustine and others as they brought their heart's needs and struggles to that task of theology? That's great. Um, it, 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 feels too, uh, it feels too obvious to say Luther uh, first, which is why I should say Luther <laughs> first. Yeah. There's a way it, I, I watch sometimes with our, our students at, at Biola, which you know, is an evangelical Protestant university. And uh, I think they often take Luther for granted because they, you know, they they encounter someone like Thomas Aquinas and they think he's sort of oh man, rarefied and austere and beautiful and exotic. And Luther, they think, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah OK, whatever. Um, but uh, I'm a I'm convinced that often they do not get it because um, they're mostly. Um, they're mostly functional Pelagians. Uh, most of us are probably that. Um, but but for Luther, I mean, that that was that really was uh, profound. I I think Luther, however you estimate sort of all the details of his development, and my goodness, there's a you know a few shelves worth of fights about what Luther had as a breakthrough and when he had it as a breakthrough, and um, 
he said he had it on the in the cloaca, which either means in the crapper or in the tower. <laughs> and and Luther, Luther's not above saying in the crapper. So. Um, but but the key thing seems to have been, um, and it's also important to note that he didn't he didn't discover that Western Christianity was completely flawed. He did discover um, that the late medieval practice of penance. Uh, was not doable. Um, and and he discovered it by sort of drinking it to the dregs. Uh, that's, that's really significant. He was a uh, sort of astoundingly, is faithful the right word? I think so. so at least a scrupulous and conscientious monk. He uh, would miss some of the, the daily hours prayers, and he would tabulate the hours he had missed well into the 1520s so he had these this huge list of hours he would try to make them up on the weekends um so all this to say he was so careful in his adherence to a system and he just got to the end of it and and he realized it uh, it could not bring him to a place of uh, freedom in christ before the face of god so he, he did what was advised um, the critique was really just you're taking it too seriously, but that's a bad thing. You know, if, if someone says to you, yeah. you're taking the system too seriously, um, <laughs> that suggests that they don't trust the system. Yeah. And so I think for Luther's own struggling, which was was also all in the forge and the irons of exegesis, it was as he was reading Paul, as he was wrestling with Paul, um, that breakthrough into this sense that. Uh, well, for me, it's always Colossians three that you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So the 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 proper spatio-temporal coordinates for my life are not here in the study in my room in Buena Park, California. It is where Christ's flesh is at the right hand of God. That that is the mm-hmm. the place I should think about first to determine what is true of me. I mean, Luther got that all the way, and therefore he was able to just say it again and again. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that conflict, I think, was utterly huge. Um, I do want to bring up Bart again, I think, for um, the way in which he saw the bankruptcy of liberal Protestantism um, in the wake of from the midst of in the wake of uh, the First World War, as he saw sort of I mean, and he was he, he knew them all. I mean, he he lived close to Harnack. You know, he, he, he saw his great teachers. Yeah who said as much as you could say, they were just geniuses. And he saw them one after another capitulating into what he saw as an unjust war effort. And, and it uh, was this rupture for him um, that caused him to fundamentally doubt uh, human effort uh, what, as, as a way to approximate the kingdom on earth. He just he sort of reiterated the transcendence of God um, in a way that no one had for a long time. And in the and eventually in the, the course of uh, Nazi Germany, but also, you know, sort of uh, against anti-communist voices, too. So he's just politically a weird voice because he keeps saying, you know, as he wrote in the Barman Declaration, the one word of God we have to hear is Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And so it's not certainly not the word of Hitler, but it's not even the word of uh, say democratic capitalism over against communism. Um, it just is this one word we have to hear. Mm. So that's big for Bart. Uh, this is less. Um, uh, this is less fractious, um, but uh, I'm interested that, uh, in the biographical significance of uh, Thomas turning to Aristotle again and again. Mm-hmm. Um, so the guy who taught me uh, uh, Aquinas, who is fantastic, is a guy named Joseph Fowerkow, who teaches at Notre Dame. Um, and he pointed out uh, to me the way that, that Thomas, far from being someone who really was a philosopher who just liked Aristotle, he's someone who turned to Aristotle when he needed some help clarifying his conceptualities when he was working out Christian doctrine. So it was this classic example of philosophy as the handmaiden to theology. Um, and so that's, that's less a, a crisis, but it is interesting to see how in the midst of his autobiogra- autobiography, um, when he needed conceptual help, he had he had found someone who could help him think through the concepts he needed in which to express the gospel uh, correctly. Um, yes, yeah, so that's a few at least that come to mind. I wonder if there's anything that sticks out to you too. I'd love to hear 
kind of what what would seem significant. The, I mean, we uh, we mentioned Augustine. Augustine kind of starts starts it off. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, the I, I found the the struggle of Aquinas to just get into the life of the cloister and the one that he chose. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That, um, you know, I'm not going to go to Monte Cassino. I'm not going to do, <laughs> I'm not going to go yeah. the route of power and abbacy. Um, the, the degree to which he is a self-effacing as much as, you know, throughout the Summa, it's always, you know, on one hand, on the other hand, but I say, <laughs> and yet, and yet he is, see, uh, he, he seems such a personally self-effacing, such a humble person. So that, is that I, Thomas, or is that I, Thomas's best sort of synthesis, best harvest of the honey of all the resources that he's got? <laughs> because everything yeah. else, everything else about him is so, um, uh, you know the, the 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 biographies say that he was a big guy, but he always strikes me as a big guy who's always trying to be small in the group pictures. Mm, that's really <laughs> nice. Yeah, and he's never a point scorer. So yeah. you know he may say on the one hand, on, on the other hand, but I say, um, mm -hmm. but it's all he's always putting the best face that he mm -hmm. can on these other arguments, yep. and he's often drawing from them in, in what he eventually. He just doesn't ever seem threatened. Um, despite, as you're saying, the fact that he was personally threatened, he was kidnapped by his family. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when he wanted to, when he wanted to join the Dominicans, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, that's right. That's really and, good. Anselm being forced to take the Episcopal crozier, mm -hmm. uh, like just little moments like that 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 remind me of you know, the, these these are just not a bunch of you know sort of brilliant brains you know. Uh, Calvin had his troubles. Edwards definitely had his his troubles, and they're all um, forged in this in this difficulty. It's uh, very much like the uh, uh, Gandalf. Uh, Gandalf is looking at wounded Frodo and saying that maybe one day he will be a vessel that light sh shines through. That's great. And so, That's... in some ways, the 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 ways that these theologians get broken in their biographies um, becomes part of the picture. It, it it ceases to be a shattered window and it becomes stained glass. Mm, that's really nice. And that's, that's got to be great too for, I think for people considering, it's really easy to think that what a theologian does is they sit in their armchair, they smoke their pipe or do whatever they do. <laughs> they have like, they're not good at relationships, but they're also sort of buffered from reality. And I'm so glad you brought those examples up. Yeah, Edwards, who was fired from his church and then then had to, you know, uh, do pulpit supply and eventually died because he took a vaccine so he could set an example for people at Princeton. And so this person after person is just Athanasius, who was exiled five times. These were not people. Yeah. And, and honestly, for most of them, the biggest problem was administration. They were they were bogged down in administration. That's why that's why someone like Augustine never wanted to be a bishop. Is because it, it meant he really couldn't be a monk because he was going to spend half his day solving fights. And yeah, so these people involved in the warp and woof of reality um, and, and probably doing their theology sort of in, in clutches and in these spare moments. Yeah. It's their, uh, it's their little quiet room of respite. Yeah. In a yeah. way. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that all but one of these books is part of the regular reading list for the Tory Honors College. So we've talked about the value of the apprenticeship to the living tradition, within the living tradition, that that holds for the theologian. So what value does it hold for your students, many of whom are never going to be professional theologians or biblical studies scholars or even clergy? Yeah, that's great. Um, when I say two things, uh, the first is that reading so what and what we do is we read primary texts we don't so they're actually ironically never going to read my book um but they're they're <laughs> going to read the people i write about and that's that's right yeah. and good um so we read primary texts and then we have 
usually about three hours right now because they're all over Zoom for us at the moment, two and a half hour discussions where those of us who are faculty, only all we do is ask questions. So we'll walk in and ask an opening question and then it's just our job to continue to ask questions Socratically on the assumption that the teacher is the author in the book. Um, and so I think one thing it's going to do is just make them good thinkers and good talkers. <clears throat> These are not just some of the greatest theologians ever to live, but they're some of the greatest thinkers ever to live. And, and most of them have also um, been habituated into the virtues of Christians. Um, Greg of Nazianzus is great on this in his theological orations, but they, they have learned humility. They've learned um, attentiveness. They've learned to be careful in their speech and to value silence. They've learned uh, the partiality of their speech. They've learned the fact that they're always speaking in the presence of God. Um, they've learned to to speak and to think with charity. So I, I think our, our students end up being much better simply thinkers and speakers as a riddle and speakers with one another because they're doing this in a conversation format. They're having to learn how to take principal positions on the basis of textual evidence and disagree with one another, but also come to consensus. Um, so that's one. And the second is, uh, and this has to do, I think, with the, the relative value and emphasis on both of those words of theology. It's a lot of times, so, so I discovered that um, a lot of our students come from non-denominational backgrounds or Baptist churches or free churches, mm -hmm. um, Calvary chapels maybe, and they love Jesus and they, they maybe have known Jesus most of their lives and they have never thought about things like this. And so they start reading, yeah. you, you know, it used to be kind of when they, when, when they got to the apostolic fathers in their freshman spring year, they would just kind of like, what in the world? And then sometimes they would think, oh, this must be the real Christianity. And then sometimes they would also think, oh, so the real Christianity, which, which is somehow equated to Eastern Orthodoxy or Roman Catholicism, as opposed to seeing this as part of their heritage. So, again, this is back uh -huh. to the living tra tradition. Um, and so one of the, the things I think is most important for our students, but for all Christians, is to know that um, when they come to us in Tory, they have – they already know the triune god uh, they, they know him they know him father son and spirit um, they've been loved by him they love him now they're learning how to talk about him good you know yeah <laughs> they and, and they even there you know they've got devotional liturgical language so their language um most of which is rooted in scripture so their language isn't necessarily bad they just don't know what they mean mm -hmm. so when they say jesus died for my sins that, that is exactly right now quite how it could be that some dude who lived 2,000 years ago that we now worship could be killed in a public execution and then my sins be gone. So you think about that for a second, you think, what yeah. in the world? And then you thrust <laughs> back on scripture to sort of try to make sense of what that means. But in one sense, I want to say my students aren't learning anything new. But in another sense, I want to say now they're finally getting you know, some some deepening sense of what this means. Um, and so to me, as a teacher, but even as a student, theologically, uh, studying theology has been the best because yeah. I, I'm getting a sense for what it means that God is a father and a son and a spirit and Jesus died for me. Um, mm. And that's, that's you know, pretty good for me and my students to think about. Again, whatever their ultimate vocation is. Mm. That's good. Well, on Christian Humanist Profiles, we like to give our guests the last word. That's what hospitality means to us. So what would you like our listeners to be considering as we wrap up the conversation? Oh, and I'm not good at last words. My last words will typically tend to be, let me think about it for, for one second. You know, I think, uh, I think in, at least in relation to this book, I, I want people to know, and, and maybe here I'm, I'm particularly thinking of if you have listeners who are in less high liturgical church settings. I want them to know that the history of the church and the church's long thinking on, reflection on the scriptures that reveal Jesus is theirs. It's, it's their possession. Um, 
And because it's there, oh, let me just switch pronouns, because it's your possession, it's also uh, something which you've been given stewardship for. Mm. Um, and so there's a fantastic gift here of receiving, along with the Bible, this two millennia tradition of reflecting on it that will not sort of send you into kind of elite academic realm, but will help you make sense of the fact that, that God is Father, Son, and Spirit who saved the world when Jesus died and rose again. Um, and, that it, you know, to, to ignore that is to, I mean, it's like, it's, it's like, uh, so I'm a, I'm a big Lakers fan, um, just because I grew up in the LA area in the 80s. You know, you had Magic Johnson. Mm-hmm. Like to ignore the tradition of the church as you read the Bible and try to make sense of God is, is like to be living next door to, you know, for me, for Matt, Magic Johnson, or maybe for someone now to LeBron James, who's ready and waiting to help you learn how to shoot a basketball and to think, now nah, I can do this on my own. <laughs> um, or, or I'm gonna, you know, I, I can I, I can watch one little YouTube video and know how to, you know, shoot a basketball. So I think, oh man, make the most of uh, these thinkers who are brothers and sisters in Christ um, and are gifts to us, so that we can carry on the task of articulating the faith and handing it on. I mean, if if you've got a heart for evangelism, discipleship, um, if you know that part of your work is to appropriate and then pass on the faith. Um, my goodness, um, don't don't miss his resources. Amen. And here, here, and that 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 is that is a great note to be leaving on. Well, thank you for coming on to the show, uh, Dr. Jensen. This has been this has been super fun for me, and uh, I hope our listeners have enjoyed it as well. Me too, David. This has been this has been a blast. You're so so fun to talk to. I hope we can meet in the <laughs> We have we have way too many friends in common and in overlap, so I hope we can meet in the flesh before too long. Absolutely. Well, dear listener, whether or not we meet in the flesh, I hope you've met, you've enjoyed this episode too. And if you've got any feedback on it, we'd love to hear it. Uh, you can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail dot com. Also, when this uh, podcast posts, there will be show notes on our blog christianhumanist.org, and you can leave comments there. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter at CH Radio Network. So those are all ways you can get in touch with us. In the meanwhile, I'm David Grubbs, wishing you all grand weeks. The Christian Humanist Profiles podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and our editor is Britt Stack. Be listening for the next Christian Humanist Profiles.